Chapter Eighteen of Cleopatra by Georg Ebers, translated by Mary J. Safford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eighteen. When Cleopatra left the temple, Iris marvelled at the change in her appearance. The severe tension which had given her beautiful face a shade of harshness had yielded to an expression of gentle sadness that enhanced its charm, yet her features quickly brightened as her attendant pointed to the procession which was just entering the forecourt of the palace. In Alexandria and throughout Egypt, birthdays were celebrated as far as possible. Therefore, to do honor to the twins, the children of the city had been sent to offer their congratulations, and at the same time to assure their royal mother of the love and devotion of the citizens. The return to the palace occupied only a few minutes, and as Cleopatra hastily donning festal garments gazed down at the bands of children it seemed as if fate by this fair spectacle had given her a sign of approval of her design she was soon standing hand in hand with the twins upon the balcony before which the procession had halted hundreds of boys and girls of the same age as the prince and princess had flocked thither the former bearing bouquets the latter small baskets filled with lilies and roses every head was crowned with a wreath and many of the girls wore garlands of flowers a chorus of youths and maidens sang a festal hymn beseeching the gods to grant the royal mother and children every happiness the leader of the chorus of girls made a short address in the name of the city and during this speech the children formed in ranks the tallest in the rear the smallest in the front and the others between according to their height the scene resembled a living garden in which rosy faces were the beautiful flowers cleopatra thanked the citizens for the charming greeting sent to her by those whom they held dearest and assured them that she returned their love her eyes grew dim with tears as she went with her three children to the throng who offered their congratulations and an unusually pretty little girl whom she kissed threw her arms around her as tenderly as if she were her own mother and how beautiful was the scene when the girls strewed the contents of their little baskets on the ground before her and the boys with many a ringing shout and loving wish offered the bouquets to her and the twins charmian had not forgotten to provide the gifts and when the chamberlains and waiting women led the children into a large hall to offer them refreshments the queen's eyes sparkled so brightly that the companion of her childhood ventured to make her difficult confession and as so often happens the event we most dread shows when it actually occurs a friendly or indifferent aspect this was the case now nothing in life is either great or small the one may be transformed to the other according to the things with which it is compared 
the tallest man becomes a dwarf beside a rocky giant of the mountain chain the smallest is a titan to the swarming ants in the forest the beggar seizes as a treasure what the rich man scornfully casts aside that which the day before yesterday seemed to cleopatra unendurable roused her keenest anxiety robbed her of part of her night's repose and induced her to adopt strenuous measures now appeared trivial and scarcely worthy of consideration yesterday and to-day had brought events and called up questions which forced barine's disappearance into the realm of unimportant matters charmian's confession was preceded by the statement that she longed for rest yet nevertheless was ready to remain with her royal friend in every situation until she no longer desired her services and sent her away but she feared that this moment had come cleopatra interrupted her with the assurance that she was speaking of something utterly impossible and when charmian disclosed barine's escape and admitted that it was she who had aided the flight of the innocent and sorely threatened granddaughter of didymus the queen started up angrily and frowned but it was only for a moment then with a smile she shook her finger at her friend embraced her and gravely but kindly assured her that of all vices ingratitude was most alien to her nature the companion of her childhood had bestowed so many proofs of faithfulness love self-sacrifice and laborious service in her behalf that they could not be long outweighed by a single act of wilful disobedience an abundant supply would still remain by virtue of which she might continue to sin without fearing that cleopatra would ever part from her charmian the latter again perceived that nothing on earth could be hostile or sharp enough to sever the bond which united her to this woman when her lips overflowed with the gratitude which filled her heart cleopatra admitted that it seemed as if in aiding barine's escape she had rendered her a service the caution with which charmian had concealed barine's refuge had not escaped her notice and she did not ask to learn it it was enough for her that the dangerous beauty was out of caesarion's reach as for antony a wall now separated him from the world and consequently from the woman who spite of alexis's accusations had probably never stood closer to his heart charmian now eagerly strove to show the queen what had induced the syrian to pursue barine so vindictively it was evident and scarcely needed proof that mark antony's whole acquaintanceship with the old scholar's granddaughter had been far from leading to any tender relation but cleopatra gave only partial attention the man whom she had loved with every pulsation of her heart already seemed to her only a dear memory she did not forget the happiness enjoyed with and through him or the wrong she had done by the use of the magic goblet yet with the wall on the coma 
which divided him from her and the rest of the world and her command to have the mausoleum built she imagined that the season of love was over any new additions to this chapter of the life of her heart were but the close even the jealousy which had clouded the happiness of her love like a fleeting rapidly changing shadow she believed she had now renounced for ever while charmian protested that no one save dion had ever been heard with favour by barine and related many incidents of her former life cleopatra's thoughts were with antony like the image of the beloved dead the towering figure of the roman hero rose before her mind but she recalled him only as he was prior to the battle of actium she desired and expected nothing more from the broken-spirited man whose condition was perhaps her own fault but she had resolved to atone for her guilt and would do so at the cost of throne and life this settled the account whatever her remaining span of existence might add or subtract was part of the bargain the entrance of alexis interrupted her with fiery passion he expressed his regret that he had been defrauded by base intrigues of the right bestowed upon him to pass sentence upon a guilty woman this was the more difficult to bear because he was deprived of the possibility of providing for the pursuit of the fugitive antony had honoured him with the commission to win herod back to his cause he was to leave alexandria that very night as nothing could be expected in this matter from the misanthropic imperator he hoped that the queen would avenge such an offence to her dignity and adopt severe measures towards the singer and her last lover dion who with sacrilegious hands had wounded the son of caesar but cleopatra with royal dignity kept him within the limits of his position commanded him not to mention the affair to her again and then with a sorrowful smile wished him success with herod in whose return to the lost cause of antony however much as she prized the skill of the mediator she did not believe when he had retired she exclaimed to charmian was i blind this man is a traitor we shall discover it wherever dion has taken his young wife let her be carefully concealed not from me but from this syrian it is easier to defend one's self against the lion than the scorpion you my friend will see that archibius seeks me this very day i must talk with him and you no longer have any thought of a parting another will come soon enough which will forever forbid these lips from kissing your dear face as she spoke she again clasped the companion of her childhood in her arms and when iris entered to request an audience for lucilius antony's most faithful friend cleopatra who had noticed the younger woman's envious glance at the embrace said was i mistaken in fancying that you imagined yourself slighted for charmian who is an older friend 
that would be wrong for i love and need you both you are her niece and indebted to her for much kindness from your earliest childhood so even though you will lose the joy of revenge upon a hated enemy forget what has happened as i did and maintain your former affectionate companionship i will reward you for it with the only thing that the daughter of the wealthy crates cannot purchase yet which she probably rates at no low value the love of her royal friend with these words she clasped iris also in a close embrace and when the latter left the room to summon lucilius she thought no woman has ever won so much love perhaps that is why she possesses so great a treasure of it and can afford such unspeakable happiness by its bestowal or is she so much beloved because she entered the world full of its wealth and dispenses it as the sun diffuses light surely that must be the case i have reason to believe it for whom did i ever love save the queen no one not even myself and i know no one in whose love for me i can believe but why did dion whom i love so fervently disdain me fool why did mark antony prefer cleopatra to octavia who was not less fair whose heart was his and whose hand held the sovereignty of half the world passing on as she spoke she soon returned ushering the roman lucilius into the presence of the queen a gallant deed had bound this man to antony after the battle of philippi when the army of the republicans fled brutus had been on the point of being seized by the enemy's horsemen but lucilius at the risk of being cut down had personated him and thereby though but for a short time rescued him this had seemed to antony unusual and noble and in his generous manner he had not only forgiven him but bestowed his favour upon him lucilius was grateful and gave him the same fidelity he had showed to brutus at actium he had risked antony's favour to prevent his deserting cleopatra after the battle and then accompanied him in his flight now he was bearing him company in his seclusion on the coma the grey-haired man who but a short time before had retained all the vigour of youth approached the queen with bowed head and saddened heart his face so regular in its contours had undergone a marked change within the past few weeks the cheeks were sunken the features had grown sharper and there was a sorrowful expression in the eyes which when informing cleopatra of his friend's condition glittered with tears before the hapless battle he was one of cleopatra's most enthusiastic admirers but since he had been forced to see his friend and benefactor risk fame happiness and honour to follow the queen he had cherished a feeling of bitter resentment towards her he would certainly have spared himself this mission had he not been sure that she who had brought her lover to ruin was the only person who could rouse him from spiritless languor to fresh energy an interest in life 
from motives of friendship urged by no one he came unbidden to the woman whom he had formerly so sincerely admired to entreat her to cheer the unfortunate man rouse him and remind him of his duty he had little news to impart for on the voyage she had herself witnessed long enough the pitiable condition of her husband now antony was beginning to be content in it and this was what most sorely troubled the faithful friend the imperator had called the little palace which he occupied on the coma his timonium because he compared himself with the famous athenian misanthrope who after fortune abandoned him had also been betrayed by many of his former friends even at tenarum he had thought of returning to the coma and by means of a wall which would separate it from the mainland rendering it as inaccessible as according to rumour the grave of timon at halai near athens gorgias had erected it and whoever wished to visit the hermit was forced to go by sea and request admittance which was granted to few cleopatra listened to lucilius with sympathy and then asked whether there was no way of cheering or comforting the wretched man no your majesty he replied his favourite occupation is to recall what he once possessed but only to show the uselessness of these memories what joys has life not offered me he asks and then adds but they were repeated again and again and after being enjoyed for the tenth time they became monotonous and lost their charm then they caused satiety to the verge of loathing only necessary things such as bread and water he says possess real value but he desires neither because he has even less taste for them than for the dainties which spoil a man's morrow yesterday in a specially gloomy hour he spoke of gold this was perhaps most worthy of desire the mere sight of it wakened pleasant hopes because it might afford so many gratifications then he laughed bitterly exclaiming that those joys were the very ones which produced the most disagreeable satiety even gold was not worth the trouble of stretching out one's hand he is fond of enlarging upon such fancies and finds images to make his meaning clear in the snow upon the highest mountain peak the feet grow cold he said in the mire they are warm but the dark mud is ugly and clings to them then i remarked that between the morass and the mountain snows lie sunny valleys where life would be pleasant but he flew into a rage vehemently protesting that he would never be content with the pitiable middle course of horace then he exclaimed i i am vanquished octavianus and his agrippa are the conquerors but if a rock mutilates or an elephant's clumsy foot crushes me i am nevertheless of a higher quality than either there spoke the old mark antony cried cleopatra but again lucilius's loyal heart throbbed with resentment against the woman who had fostered the recklessness which had brought his powerful friend to ruin and he continued but he often sees himself in a different light no writer could invent a more unworthy life than mine 
he exclaimed recently a farce ending in a tragedy lucilius might have added still harsher sayings but the sorrowful expression in the tearful eyes of the afflicted queen silenced them upon his lips yet cleopatra's name blended with most of the words uttered by the broken-spirited man sometimes it was associated with the most furious reproaches but more frequently with expressions of boundless delight and wild outbursts of fervent longing and this was what inspired lucilius with the hope that the queen's influence would be effectual with his friend therefore he repeated some especially ardent words to which cleopatra listened with grateful joy yet when lucilius paused she remarked that doubtless the misanthropist had spoken of her and probably of octavia also in quite a different way she was prepared for the worst for she was one of the rocks against which his greatness had been shattered this reminded lucilius of the comment antony had made upon the three women whom he had wedded and he answered reluctantly fulvia the wife of his youth i knew the bold hot-blooded woman the former wife of clodius he called the tempest which swelled his sails yes yes cried cleopatra so she did he owes her much but i too am indebted to the dead fulvia she taught him to recognize and yield to woman's power not always to his advantage retorted lucilius whose resentment was revived by the last sentence and without heeding the faint flush on the queen's cheek he added of octavia he said that she was the straight path which leads to happiness and those who are content to walk in it are acceptable to gods and men then why did he not suffer it to content him cried cleopatra wrathfully fulvia's school replied the roman was probably the last where he would learn the moderation which as you know is so alien to his nature his opinion of the quiet valleys and middle course you have just heard but i what have i been to him urged the queen lucilius bent his gaze for a short time on the floor then answered hesitatingly you ask to hear and the queen's command must be obeyed he compared your majesty to a delicious banquet given to celebrate a victory at which the guests crowned with garlands revel before the battle which is lost said the queen hurriedly in a muffled voice the comparison is apt now after the defeat it would be absurd to prepare another feast the tragedy is closing so the play doubtless he said so which preceded it would be but a wearisome repetition if performed a second time one thing it is true seems desirable a closing act of reconciliation if you think it is in my power to recall my husband to active life rely upon me the banquet of which he spoke occupied long years the dessert will consume little time but i am ready to serve it when i asked permission to visit him he refused what plan of meeting have you arranged that 
i will leave to your feminine delicacy of feeling replied lucilius yet i have come with a request whose fulfilment will perhaps contain the answer eros mark antony's faithful body-slave humbly petitions your majesty to grant him a few minutes audience you know the worthy fellow he would die for you and his master and he i once heard from your lips the remark of king antiochus that no man was great to his body-slave thus eros sees his master's weaknesses and lofty qualities from a nearer point of view than we and he is shrewd antony gave him his freedom long ago and if your majesty does not object to receiving a man so low in station let him come replied cleopatra your demand upon me is just unhappily i am but too well aware of the atonement do your friend before you came i was engaged in making preparations for the fulfilment of one of his warmest wishes with these words she dismissed the roman her feelings as she watched his departure were of very mingled character the yearning for the happiness of which she had been so long deprived had again awaked while the unkind words which he had applied to her still rankled in her heart but the door had scarcely closed behind lucilius when the usher announced a deputation of the members of the museum the learned gentlemen came to complain of the wrong which had been done to their colleague didymus and also to express their loyalty during these trying times cleopatra assured them of her favour and said that she had already offered ample compensation to the old philosopher in a certain sense she was one of themselves they all knew that from early youth she had honoured and shared their labours in proof of this she would present to the library of the museum the two hundred thousand volumes from pergamus one of the most valuable gifts mark antony had ever bestowed upon her and which he had hitherto regarded merely as a loan this she hoped would repay didymus for the injury which to her deep regret had been inflicted upon him and at least partially repair the loss sustained by the former library of the museum during the conflagration in the bruchium the sages eagerly assuring her of their gratitude and devotion retired most of them were personally known to cleopatra who to their mutual pleasure and advantage had measured her intellectual powers with the most brilliant minds of their body the sun had already set when a procession of the priests of serapis the chief god of the city whose coming had been announced the day before appeared at lochius accompanied by torch and lantern-bearers it moved forward with slow and solemn majesty in harmony with the nature of serapis there were many reminders of death the meaning of every image every standard every shrine every peculiarity of the music and singing was familiar to the queen even the changing colours of the lights referred to the course of growth and decay in the universe and in human life and the magnificent close of the chant of homage which represented the reception of the royal soul into the essence of the deity the apotheosis of the sovereign was well suited to stir the heart 
for a sea of light unexpectedly flooded the whole procession and while its glow irradiated the huge pile of the palace the sea with its forest of ships and masts and the shore with its temples pylons obelisks and superb buildings all the choruses accompanied by the music of sackbuts cymbals and lutes blended in a mighty hymn whose waves of sound rose to the star-strewn sky and reached the open sea beyond the pharos many a symbolical image suggested death and the resurrection defeat and a victory following it by the aid of great serapis and when the torches retired vanishing in the darkness with the last notes of the chanting of the priests cleopatra raised her head feeling as if the vow she had made during the gloomy singing of the aged men and the extinguishing of the torches had received the approval of the deity brought by her forefathers to alexandria and enthroned there to unite in his own person the nature of the greek and the egyptian gods her tomb was to be built and if destiny was fulfilled to receive her lover and herself she had perceived from antony's bitter words as well as the looks and tones of lucilius that he as well as the man to whom her heart still clung with indissoluble bonds held her responsible for actium and the fall of his greatness the world she knew would imitate them but it should learn that if love had robbed the greatest man of his day of fame and sovereignty that love had been worthy of the highest price the belief which had just been symbolically represented to her that it was allotted to the vanishing light to rise again in new and radiant splendour she would maintain for the present though the best success could scarcely lead to anything more than merely fanning the glimmering spark and deferring its extinction for herself there was no longer any great victory to win which would be worth the conflict yet the weapons must not rest until the end antony must not perish growling like a second timon or a wild beast caught in a snare she would rekindle though but for the last blaze the fire of his hero nature which blind love for her and the magic spell that had enabled her to find his will had covered for a time with ashes while listening to the resurrection hymn of the priests of serapis she had asked herself if it might not be possible to give antony when he had been roused to fresh energy the son of caesar as a companion in arms true she had found the boy in a mood far different from the one for which she had hoped if he had once been carried on to a bold deed it seemed to have exhausted his energy for he remained absorbed in the most pitiable love-sickness yet he had not recovered from his illness when he was better he would surely wake to active interest in the events which threatened to exert so great an influence on his own existence and like the humblest slave lament the defeat of actium hitherto he had listened to the tidings of battle which had reached his ears with an indifference that seemed intelligible and pardonable only when attributed to his wound 
his tutor rodan had just requested a leave of absence remarking that caesarion would not lack companions since he was expecting antyllus and other youths of his own age a flood of light streamed from the windows of the reception-hall of the king of kings there was still time to seek him and make him understand what was at stake ah if she could but succeed in awaking his father's spirit if that culpable attack should prove the harbinger of future deeds of manly daring no interview with him as yet had encouraged this expectation but a mother's heart easily sees even in disappointment a step which leads to a new hope when charmian entered to announce antony's body slave she sent word to him to wait and requested her friend to accompany her to her son as they approached the apartments occupied by caesarion antyllus's loud voice reached them through the open door whose curtain was only half drawn the first word which the queen distinguished was her own name so motioning to her companion she stood still barine was again the subject of conversation antony's son was relating what alexis had told him cleopatra the syrian had asserted intended to send the young beauty to the mines or into exile and severely punish dion but both had made their escape the ephebi had behaved treacherously by taking sides with their foe but this was because they were not yet invested with their robes he hoped to induce his father to do this as soon as he shook off his pitiable misanthropy and he must also be persuaded to direct the pursuit of the fugitives this will not be difficult he cried insolently for the old man appreciates beauty and has himself cast an eye on the singer if they capture her i'll guarantee nothing you king of kings for spite of his grey beard he can cut us all out with the women and barine as we have heard doesn't think a man of much importance until his locks begin to grow thin i gave dercateus orders to send all his men in pursuit he's as cunning as a fox and the police are compelled to obey him if i were not forced to lie here like a dead donkey i would soon find her sighed caesarion night or day she is never out of my mind i have already spent everything i possessed in the search yesterday i sent for the steward seleucus what is the use of being my mother's son and the fat little fellow isn't specially scrupulous he will do nothing yet there must be gold enough the queen has sunk millions in the sand on the syrian frontier of the delta there is to be a square hole or something of the sort dug there to hide the fleet i only half understand the absurd plan the money might have paid hundreds of spies so talents are thrown away and the strong box is locked against the sun but i'll find one that will open to me i must have her though i risk the crown it always sounds like a jeer when they call me the king of kings i am not fit for sovereignty besides the throne will be seized ere i really ascend it we are conquered 
and if we succeed in concluding a peace which will secure us life and a little more we must be content for my part i shall be satisfied with a country estate on the water a sufficient supply of money and above all barine what do i care for egypt as caesar's son i ought to have ruled rome but the immortals knew what they were doing when they prompted my father to disinherit me to govern the world one must have less need of sleep really you know it i always feel tired even when i am well people must let me alone your father too antyllus is laying down his arms and letting things go as they will ah so he is cried antony's son indignantly but just wait the sleeping lion will wake again and when he uses his teeth and paws my mother will run away and your father will follow her replied cesarion with a melancholy smile wholly untinged by scorn all is lost but conquered kings and queens are permitted to live caesar's son will not be exhibited to the choirites in the triumphal procession rodin says that there would be an insurrection if i appeared in the forum if i go there again it certainly will not be in octavianus's train i am not suited for that kind of ignominy it would stifle me and ere i would grant any man the pleasure of dragging the son of caesar behind him to increase his own renown i would put an end ten nay a hundred times over in the good old roman fashion to my life which is by no means especially attractive what is sweeter than sound sleep and who will disturb and rouse me when death has lowered his torch before me but now i think i shall be spared this extreme whatever else they may inflict upon me will scarcely exceed my powers of endurance if any one has learned contentment it is i the king of kings and co-regent of the great queen has been trained persistently and with excellent success to be content what should i be and what am i yet i do not complain and wish to accuse no one we need not summon octavianus and when he is here let him take what he will if he only spares the lives of my mother the twins and little alexander whom i love and bestows on me the estate the main thing is that it must be full of fish-ponds of which i spoke the private citizen caesarion who devotes his time to fishing and the books he likes to read will gladly be allowed to choose a wife to suit his own taste the more humble her origin the more easily i shall win the consent of the roman guardian do you know caesarion interrupted antony's unruly son leaning back on the cushions and stretching his feet farther in front of him if you were not the king of kings i should be inclined to call you a base mean-natured fellow one who has the good fortune to be the son of julius caesar ought not to forget it so disgracefully my gall overflows at your whimpering by the dog it was one of my most senseless pranks to take you to the singer i should think there would be other things to occupy the mind of the king of kings besides barine cares no more for you than the last fish you caught she showed that plainly enough i say once more if dirk 
Tius's men succeed in capturing the beauty who has robbed you of your senses she won't go with you to your miserable estate to cook the fish you catch for if we have her again and my father holds out his hand to her all your labour will be in vain he saw the fair enchantress only twice and had no time to become better acquainted but she captured his fancy and if i remind him of her who knows what will happen here cleopatra beckoned to her companion and returned to her apartments with drooping head on reaching them she broke the silence saying listening charmian is unworthy of a queen but if all listeners heard things so painful one need no longer guard keyholes and chinks of doors i must recover my calmness ere i receive arrows one thing more is barine's hiding-place secure i don't know archibius says so very well they are searching for her zealously enough as you heard and she must not be found i am glad that she did not set a snare for the boy how a jealous heart leads us astray were she here i would grant her anything to make amends for my unjust suspicion of her and antony and to think that alexis but for your interposition he would have succeeded meant to send her to the mines it is a terrible warning to be on my guard against whom first of all my own weakness this is a day of recognition a noble aim but on the way the feet bleed and the heart ah charming the poor weak disappointed heart she sighed heavily and supported her head on the arm resting upon the table at her side the polished exquisitely grained surface of thia wood was worth a large estate the gems in the rings and bracelets which glittered on her hand and arm would have purchased a principality this thought entered her mind and overpowered by a feeling of angry disgust she would fain have cast all the costly rubbish into the sea or the destroying flames she would gladly have been a beggar content with the barley bread of epicurus she said to herself if in return she could but have inspired her son even with the views of the reckless blusterer antyllus her worst fears had not pictured caesarion so weak so insignificant she could no longer rest upon her cushions and while with drooping head she gazed backward over the past the accusing voice in her own breast cried out that she was reaping what she had sowed she had repressed curbed the boy's awakening will to secure his obedience understood how to prevent any exercise of his ability or her efforts in wider circles true it had been done on many a pretext why should not her son taste the quiet happiness which she had enjoyed in the garden of epicurus and was not the requirement that whoever is to command must first learn to obey based upon old experiences 
but this was a day of reckoning and insight and for the first time she found courage to confess that her own burning ambition had marked out the course of caesarian's education she had not repressed his talents from cool calculation but it had been pleasant to her to see him grow up free from aspirations she had granted the dreamer repose without arousing him how often she had rejoiced over the certainty that this son on whom antony after his victory over the parthians had bestowed the title of co-regent would never rebel against his mother's guardianship the welfare of the state had doubtless been better secured in her trained hands than in those of an inexperienced boy and the proud consciousness of power her heart swelled so long as she lived she would remain queen to transfer the sovereignty to another whatever name he might bear had seemed to her impossible now she knew how little her son yearned for lofty things her heart contracted the saying you reap what you sowed gave her no peace and wherever she turned in her past life she perceived the fruit of the seeds which she had buried in the ground the field was sinking under the burden of the ears of misfortune the harvest was ripe for the reaper but ere he raised the sickle the owner's claim must be preserved gorgias must hasten the building of the tomb the end could not be long deferred how to shape this worthily if the victor left her no other choice had just been pointed out by the son of whom she was ashamed his father's noble blood forbade him to bear the deepest ignominy with the patience his mother had inculcated it had grown late ere she admitted antony's body slave but for her the business of the night was just commencing after he had gone she would be engaged for hours with the commanders of the army the fleet the fortifications the soliciting of allies too must be carried on by means of letters containing the most stirring appeals to the heart eros antony's body-slave appeared his kind eyes filled with tears at the sight of the queen grief had not lessened the roundness of his handsome face but the expression of mischievous often insolent gaiety had given place to a sorrowful droop of the lips and his fair hair had begun to turn grey lucilius's information that cleopatra had consented to make advances to antony had seemed like the rising of the sun after a long period of darkness in his eyes not only his master but everything else must yield to the power of the queen he had heard antony at tarsus inveigh against the egyptian serpent protesting that he would make her pay so dearly for her questionable conduct towards himself and the cause of caesar that the treasure-houses on the nile should be like an empty wine-skin yet a few hours after body and soul had been in her toils so it had continued till the battle of actium now there was nothing more to lose but what might not cleopatra bestow upon his master he thought of the delightful years during which his face had grown so round and every day fresh pleasures and spectacles such as the world would never again witness had satiated eye and ear palate and nostril nay even curiosity if they could be repeated even in a simpler form so much the better his main nay almost his sole desire was to release his lord from this wretched solitude this horrible misanthropy so ill-suited to his nature cleopatra had kept him waiting two hours but he would willingly have loitered in the ante-room thrice as long if she only determined to follow his counsel it was worth considering and eros did not hesitate to give it 
no one could foresee how antony would greet cleopatra herself so he proposed that she should send charmian not alone but with her clever hunchbacked maid to whom the imperator himself had given the name isopian he liked charmian and could never see the dusky maid without jesting with her if his master could once be induced to show a cheerful face to others beside himself eros and perceived how much better it was to laugh than to lapse into sullen reverie and anger much would be gained and charmian would do the rest if she brought a loving message from her royal mistress hitherto cleopatra had not interrupted him but when she expressed the opinion that a slave's nimble tongue would have little power to change the deep despondency of a man overpowered by the most terrible disaster eros waved his short broad hand saying i trust your majesty will pardon the frankness of a man so humble in degree but those in high station often permit us to see what they hide from one another only the loftiest and the lowliest the gods and the slaves behold the great without disguise may my ears be cropped if the imperator's melancholy and misanthropy are so intense all this is a disguise which pleases him you know how in better days he enjoyed appearing as dionysus and with what wanton gaiety he played the part of the god now he is hiding his real cheerful face behind the mask of unsocial melancholy because he thinks the former does not suit this time of misfortune true he often says things which make your skin creep and frequently broods mournfully over his own thoughts but this never lasts long when we are alone if i come in with a very funny story and he doesn't silence me at once you can rely on his surpassing it with a still more comical one a short time ago i reminded him of the fishing party when your majesty had a diver fasten a salted herring on his hook you ought to have heard him laugh and exclaim what happy days those were the lady charmian need only remind him of them and isopian spiced the illusion with a jest i'll give my nose true it is only a small one but everybody values that feature most if they don't persuade him to leave that horrible crow's nest in the middle of the sea they must remind him of the twins and little alexander for when he permits me to talk about them his brow smooths most speedily he still speaks very often to lucilius and his other friends of his great plans of forming a powerful empire in the east with alexandria as its principal city his warrior blood is not yet calm a short time ago i was even ordered to sharpen the curved persian scimitar he likes to wield one could not know what service it might be he said then he swung his mighty arm by the dog the grey-haired giant still has the strength of three youths when he is once more with you among warriors and battle chargers all will be well let us hope so replied cleopatra kindly and promised to follow his advice when iris who had taken charmian's place accompanied the queen to her chamber after several hours of toil she found her silent and sad lost in thought she accepted her attendant's aid breaking her silence only after she had gone to her couch this has been a hard day iris she said it brought nothing save the confirmation of an old saying perhaps the most ancient in the world every one wilt reap only what he sows the plant which grows from the seed you place in the earth may be crushed but no power in the world will compel the seed to develop differently or produce fruit unlike what nature 
has assigned to it my seed was evil this now appears in the time of harvest but we will yet bring a handful of good wheat to the storehouses we will provide for that while there is time i will talk with gorgias early to-morrow morning while we were building you showed good taste and often suggested new ideas when gorgias brings the plans for the mausoleum you shall examine them with me you have a right to do so for if i am not mistaken few will visit the finished structure more frequently than my iris the girl started up and raising her hand as if taking a vow exclaimed your tomb will vainly wait my visit your end will be mine also may the gods preserve your youth from it replied the queen in a tone of grave remonstrance we still live and will do battle End of chapter eighteen